Hello and welcome to Hall Render's Practical Solutions Podcast, featuring thoughtful analysis and insightful commentary on the legal issues facing the healthcare industry. This episode features a panel discussion led by Hall Render attorney Brian Bettner and features guests from Everside Health, Dispatch Health, and Encompass Health. So good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much for investing your time with us on what hopefully is a beautiful afternoon to you somewhere. My name is Brian Bettner. Again, I'm an attorney with Hall Render. Today, we have an impressive panel on the whole notion and concept of the evolution of healthcare delivery, where we're making be talking about trends and opportunities and challenges in navigating the healthcare status quo from the perspective of a few organizations making a splash in, in their respective areas and, and hopefully touch some expectations and predictions for the future. But before we dive into the panel introductions, I want to provide an overview for our panel, who we have participating today. There's a number of us across the country, whether as a participant, you're a hospital or health system representative or multi-specialty group practice or home health or hospice. We have a broad array of individuals on the phone or on Zoom with us now, and, and, and I'm sure you also have interesting insight and experiences that may guide questions during the next hour um, or just short of that. So please use the Q&A feature to pose those as we, as we proceed here over the next, uh, like I said, about an hour. Our goal today is that whatever your role is in the industry, you'll come away with something, a new idea, a fresh perspective, a new strategy that you can apply to your organization or your role as you navigate this evolving healthcare landscape. So to give you an idea what to expect, we're gonna take a few minutes for each of the panelists to briefly introduce themselves tell a little bit about their background in the industry and their respective organizations. I will then kick off our conversation with a very brief overview of what we mean by the evolution of healthcare and then ask some questions that draw out some of the high-level themes that we hope to be talking about here over the next hour and get you thinking. And then toward the tail end of our hour today, we'll open up the Q&A to give you an opportunity to ask specific questions that you've been thinking about or to help you navigate some of the issues that have been challenging for you. So with that, again, we're grateful for your time today. Unless you have any initial questions, let's get started with a few introductions. And so now I'm going to turn to, I'm going to turn to um, um, Meg Duffy with Dispatch Health. Meg, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Brian. Uh, happy to be here. Um, I'm gonna, just as part of my intro, cover three things. Who am I, um, what do I do, and what is Dispatch Health? So my name is Meg Duffy. Um, I'm the VP of Strategy at Dispatch Health. I, I joined Dispatch in August of 2020 in the midst of the pandemic. Um, and prior to joining Dispatch Health, I spent about a decade on the health system side, um, working for various health systems in the industry, always in a strategy role. And that brings me to my, my second thing, what is strategy? Um, what do I do? Because often I get that question, you know, what is strategy? And I would describe it as uh, the way that a, a mentor that was very important to me did years ago. Strategy is watching what's happening on the fringes of the world that we live in and how it's going to impact how we deliver care in the future. So it's exactly um, aligned with, I, I believe, the, the topic here, the evolution of healthcare delivery. And then what does dispatch do? Dispatch health um, really is a tech-enabled provider uh, company that partners with health systems and payer groups across the country to deliver medical care in the home to hope to hopefully avoid unnecessary urgent care, emergency room visits and uh, hospital admissions. So in a nutshell, uh, that's me, what I do in strategy and dispatch health. Thank you so much, Meg. I really appreciate it. Chad, thanks for being with us today. Tell us about yourself. Thanks, Brian. And 
Uh, legal is not as interesting of an introduction as Meg's and strategy, but um, I'll try and share a little bit about the company too. My name is Chad Knight, General Counsel, Encompass Health, Home Health and Hospice. Um, our home health side is the nation's fourth largest provider of skilled home health services by revenue. Our hospice side is the eighth largest provider. Um, we operate in 31 states with a concentration in the southern half of the U.S. Um, and then just home health patients are frequently referred to us following a stay in an acute care or inpatient rehab hospital or other facility. And we also have many patients referred from primary care settings and specialty physicians without a hospital stay. Um, our patients are typically older adults with three or more chronic conditions, significant functional limitations, and may require a number of medications. We also provide hospice services to terminally ill patients and look forward to sharing more um, through this panel. Thanks. Oh, that's great. That's great. Thanks so much, Chad. Jacob, so it looks like we're bothering, you're, we're interrupting your mountain retreat. So um, sorry for that. We really appreciate you giving us time here this Thursday afternoons. Well, thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Jacob Bregman, and my role is the market president for uh, the west side of the United States for Everside Health. Uh, so in that role, I'm responsible for operations and client relationships, operating about 50 uh, health centers. And uh, before working at Everside Health, which I joined in 2019, uh, similar to Mega, I have some background working in health systems. So I worked at University of Colorado Hospital here in Denver. Uh, prior to that, I worked at DeVita, a large dialysis company, and started off in healthcare at the advisory board company in Washington, D.C. Um, if, oh, you're wondering, if you're wondering, what is Everside Health? So Everside Health is the country's second largest provider of direct primary care. Um, and Everside Health is a new name and a new brand for us just within the past few weeks uh, those on the call may know us as Paladina Health, uh, Activate Healthcare, or HealthStat. Those are the three legacy companies that merged together uh, to become Everside Health. And what we do in a nutshell is we partner with employers, we partner with unions, and we develop on-site, near-site, and virtual primary care services. Um, so the, the typical challenge that we address with our clients is groups, particularly employers, are seeing uh, healthcare costs go up and up and up, but they're not seeing necessarily the quality um, of the health of their employees and their dependents are receiving uh, going up. So our model involves uh, really giving primary care providers a lot more time to spend with their patient, longer appointment times, smaller panel sizes. We hire providers who work at the top of their scope to fulfill potentially up to 90% of a patient's healthcare needs inside primary care. And then we try to make the incentives aligned uh, to ensure that we're providing high quality and at the same time, low cost primary care. So that's Everside in a nutshell. And again, thanks for having me. Oh, Jacob, thanks so much. So you touched on a number of issues hopefully we'll explore here today. So, so let me, as I commented on a few minutes ago, before we dive into the panelists' perspectives and experiences, I want to I want to give a very brief backdrop. So we talk about the evolution of healthcare. We've had a bit of a level set with everybody in terms of what we mean. So, so when discussing the notion of an evolving healthcare landscape in terms of how and where care is being delivered, it's important to have a, a, a background that kind of speaks to what's driving the evolution. And so here's how I'll tee that up for us, just so we're coming from the, from the same point. We've had a perfect storm of sorts for the last 20 years or so. And if you want to go back to 
1999 and 2001, the, the, the whole notion driving quality that really brought, at least when you're a healthcare provider and you're involved in policy and quality and how we deliver it, the, the Institute of Medicines to Air is Human and Crossing the Quality Chasm, really seminal papers that started a dialogue, certainly within the federal healthcare system in terms of uh, the return on investment that American healthcare gets and the prevalence of patient safety events, et cetera. And then when you compound that with uh, Social Security trust fund insolvency issues, CMS's hospital quality initiatives, the Joint Commission's national patient safety goals, uh, dramatic advancements in HIT. I mean, if you go to any healthcare provider, from a line item standpoint, the the health information, whether it be the chief technology officer or whatever the title is, they have an insatiable budget because there's all sorts of toys out there. The dramatic advancements in HIT are really driving things. Uh, the advent in, in, in a, of the triple aim certainly increased fraud and abuse compliance enforcement with additional funding. That creates scrutiny and, and opportunities to avoid, certainly. The whole notion of corporate negligence and negligent credentialing uh, takes a very significant role, a host of market trends. Patients have a greater expectation today of their experiences and their quality and their outcomes, and certainly quick-moving commercial payers. That entire perfect storm that's been happening the past 15-plus years feeds into what's happening today. You know, there's a long-standing axiom that continues, I believe, to be true, which is that reimbursement policy drives delivery system change. And and we have seen that through the Affordable Care Act. Now, what, 11, just a hair over 11 years, two days ago, it was uh, 11 years old, I guess. But um, CMS has made its goal very clear of shifting the, the largest payer in the country in terms of lives touched uh, in relationships with healthcare providers. Its goal of shifting Medicare and Medicaid away from fee-for-service to being more oriented to value-based and pay-for-performance quality control, cost control, driving integration among providers, et cetera. But this is really challenging when you consider that so much of the foundation of our infrastructure, our healthcare infrastructure, is built on or has been built on, not inappropriately, but is built on acute care, an inpatient-focused mindset, patients coming to providers, um, certainly a hospital anchor design, a hospital-sponsored and funded design, if you will, and these and other factors have contributed to a, a, a very meaningful shift in where and how care is provided. Generally, I would say an emphasis on primary care, you know, pre-acute and post-acute um, care of individuals and certainly end-of-life um, issues, among, uh, among other matters that are starting to become prevalent because of the costs involved in care. There's a, there's a data point, an overwhelming percentage of Medicare's budget is attributed to the last 180 days of life. And, and we're starting to look at that as a society and a country. And as a result of all these pressures, the healthcare industry has been making efforts to improve its efficiency, access, quality, affordability of services, and lots of changes have occurred, in, in especially the past few years as a result of these efforts. For example, I mean, we, we see a tremendous, uh, a me- measurable, I should say, decrease in hospital admissions as more people are served throughout the outpatient care continuum, we'll call it. And so uh, there is a a confluence of events and activities, and we've got a lot of innovators around the country. It's really amazing. Anything is impossible in healthcare, but for some hurdles and challenges, of course, that hopefully we'll explore today. So with this as a backdrop, we're going to turn to our panel. 
And, and um, Meg, I'm not picking on you. We started introductions with you. But um, I want to start with you here. And I'll, here's what I want to get out, uh, set aside so that everybody understands this. The whole notion, the COVID elephant in the room. This is not so much a COVID panel discussion, but we can't avoid it. It is probably the prevailing or, or the dominant um, experience for many of us, uh, certainly over the past 12, uh, 12 plus months. But the past several years have involved some common denominators for all providers in terms of them shifting the patient experience and, and, and emphasizing quality, addressing population of health issues, and certainly efficiency and cost control. So with those dominant factors, Meg, I want to start with you, because in some respects, Dispatch Health's its existence, it has to do with many of these things. So, so can you describe for us Dispatch's kind of mindset and how, how it, tro- it, it chose and has started to address these trends? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I wish I could speak firsthand um, to being one of the the founders of Dispatch, but our co-founders started Dispatch in 2013, really um, after decades of um, working as clinicians. Our CEO, Dr. Mark Prather, is an emergency medicine physician, and and the stories he tells about seeing people come into the emergency department and, you know, not... thinking there's gotta be a better way. I don't know that they're gonna get their meds. I don't know that they'll follow up with their cardiologist. You know, I, I don't have any context of their lives. They come in, we treat them and they're out. And he you know, started to think there's just gotta be a better way. So um, he started in Denver where we're headquartered, piloting really with EMS agencies to reimagine the 911 response and using a proprietary risk stratification model and some logistics engine we have um, within our platform we've been able to prove that you can safely risk stratify patients, determine who's appropriate to be seen in the home and effectively take those clinical capabilities to the home. Um, We have a a set of providers, an emergency trained physician assistant or nurse practitioner along with a medical technician that goes in the home with the clinical capabilities to be able to treat people where they are, meet them where they are versus and avoid, you know, um, unnecessary trips into the emergency department. So saving, you know, the unnecessary costs, not just in the emergency department, but also for the EMS agencies and transporting those patients. So we quickly realized, okay, you know, not only are we able to accomplish this at a lower cost, um, but over the years now, as we've scaled the model across the country, we, you know, here to date, our, our NPS score is still 96, which is just phenomenal. You don't see that, you know, very often in healthcare delivery, that high of a, a patient experience score, our net promoter score has consistently maintained that high our outcomes, um, we believe to be uh, superior, particularly as we branch into areas like hospital at home, where you know our mortality rates are less than 4%, uh, or I'm sorry, our readmission rates are less than 4%, our unexpected mortality is zero. And so it's, um, we're able to say, gosh, you know, we've taken care back to the home, we've had to do some testing, you know, started small, but as we scale, we continue to see lower costs, better experience and better outcomes. And our providers love it. They have more autonomy. Um, they are able to experience a better relationship with the patients. They see their pets and their family members, and they get that context of the social determinants of health that you may not get um, in other care settings. So that's sort of, you're exactly right. We were born out of this mentality of there's got to be a better way to achieve the triple or quadruple aim. Um, and I'd say, you know, five plus years later, operating under the dispatch health model, we've been able to prove that it's possible. There's a lot to unpack there. I like that. So, Jacob, let's let's go to you. I want to understand the direct primary care model that that Everside is is largely built on today in terms of its priorities and its emphasis. 
how does that dispatch has found a sweet spot in terms of where it's seen a void? What is Everside's view in terms of how direct primary care plays into that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love what Meg say, said, and it resonates with our philosophy of there's got to be a better way. And I think the niche that we fit into is people who sponsor health plans. So typically employers, Taft-Hartley union groups, uh, some benefits trust funds. Um, as I mentioned before, healthcare is not necessarily going up even as costs go uh, you know, through the roof. And so our approach is basically to proactively and comprehensively manage primary care. And we do that through a mix, a mix of brick and mortar primary care clinics. And as I'm sure we could all speak to the growth of virtual care over the past year. Um, so a couple of things that I think are highlights of the model, we leverage technology a lot uh, to risk stratify patients. I'll give you an example. And I know Brian, you don't wanna to go to COVID quite yet, but it's, uh, it, it's pertinent in this case. You know, A year ago when nobody really knew what was happening with, with the coronavirus, uh, we were able to leverage our analytics and stratify our patients, basically depending on their risk factors, if they were to contract the virus, the highest risk folks got a personal call from their primary care physician. And next step down, they might've received a call from an advanced practice provider or from medical assistant or uh, a web message, basically letting them know, hey, we're here for you uh, and, and, and getting those patients, getting their medications refilled, getting them care as they need it. Sometimes just reassuring people um, so um, not, not dissimilar from Dispatch Health, a, a big part of our, uh, of our model is keeping patients away from higher, uh, higher cost uh, locations for care, such as urgent care or the emergency department, and when possible, managing healthcare within primary care. Uh, there are things we can do related to uh, dermatology is a great example. Women's health is another example where uh, with a well-trained uh, uh, family medicine physician or advanced practice provider, we can take care of those needs for the patient within our model uh, at no cost to the patient. And that avoids a specialty visit uh, that en enhances coordination um, because we're not worried about following up on referrals and records and things like that uh, and, and convenience and time savings for the member. Does the, reimbur the current reimbursement scheme, the, the major payers, uh, governmental and commercial, do they facilitate that? I mean, I often use an expression when I talk to physicians today that a lot in advanced practice professionals, a lot is required of them today and there's no CPT code for it, right? There's, they're, they're being asked to do things in a management way that may not fully align with the reimbursement system. Is that, um, is the model you just described, does it fit well or are a lot of these things will value adds? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And so we, the, the broad model that we fit under is direct primary care. And the, the direct word basically references that we view our relationship as between the provider and the patient, whereas in traditional fee-for-service medicine, there's, a, it, there's the insurance carrier that's in there. So for the most part, we don't bill uh, at all. Uh, there are certain instances where the IRS requires us to bill under high deductible health plans and things like that. But for the most mm -hmm. part, um, members might, you might compare um, your access to Everside Health as kind of like a gym membership. Uh, we collect a flat mm -hmm. fee or a monthly fee and then members come in and use our care as, as much or as little as they need. It, it doesn't really matter. There's no impact on reimbursement if it's virtual, if it's in person, if it's via a text message. Um, so that's one of, the, one of the really nice things. And I think the providers who work in our model really enjoy that. They, they're not spending time billing and coding and upcharging. Uh, they're just focused on providing the right 
the right care to the patient. Uh, Chad, Jacob just described a pretty flat relationship to payers, uh, a more streamlined, but that's not, that's not your experience, right? Right. Home health for a long time has, you know, very much fee for service. Um, we're seeing, I think within the past seven years, and it's, it's just growing and growing is uh, new payment models. And so the things that shift more to the value-based care, like you talked about earlier, Right now, Encompass has, uh, we're collaborating with about 140 different, um, within diff different payment models. So these are next-gen ACOs, MSSP, and direct contracting is one of the newer ones um, coming from CMS. So, so as, you know, as that landscape changes, our, our ability to, you know, to fit in and provide more value-based care is, is growing too. So that's, I think that's just going to keep keep increasing as, as we go into the future. Is that having to maintain competency over 140, 140 or so different payment models? How does that explain me how that works? That seems a bit mind numbing. Well, it, yeah, and there's, there's probably only a dozen or so different payment models, but I think MSSP has been around and NextGen have been around longer. So those are pretty standard now, but um, you know, as we're working on direct contracting models, that's, new and everyone's getting their templates together and things. So that takes more time. I think those will, that'll get easier as, as time goes on, but even just, you know, working with 140 different, whether it's physician groups or hospitals or ACOs, each of them, you know, depending on the region has different things that's important to them and drafting the contract in a way that, that aligns best in the patient's interest really is, um, is I think the fun part about, about the new models. So, um, so that, that's what we're working through. And that, that takes time as uh, with each relationship. Meg, Compass can align through recognized participating provider arrangements with commercial payers and Medicaid, Medicare, et cetera. But how does that work for dispatch? Yeah, I mean, we are contracted with 300 plus managed care um, contracts across the country. We have you know, 150 plus covered lives that have access to dispatch health through those contracts. And then of course we see Medicare and Medicaid and we're looking at, you know, how to participate with direct contracting as well. Most of our, um, most of our interest comes from health system partners or um, provider groups that are taking risk um, and that we're able to demonstrate the value on their different populations. Not to say we're taking the, the risk directly ourselves, but we're able to enter into an arrangement with those health systems or provider groups that are at risk and um, partner with them to make sure, you know, that we're, again, risk stratifying, identifying the most appropriate patients that we can be helping offset unnecessary costs. And then one of our, our main things always is to tuck the patient back into whomever is their primary care or, you know, wh whoever is their network to make sure that, you know, right now we don't have necessarily that longitudinal relationship with the patient, um, but we want to make sure that they're taken care of um, and tucked right back in. So regardless of the payer, that's always top of mind as well. Um, but I would say that the most attention from interest from the, the industry is coming from those that are already taking risk today. What each of you has described assumes that we're engaging, the whole notion of helping a patient, engaging a patient assumes that their patients understand your models. They understand how to take advantage of it. They, they are, they're engaged enough to be, I mean, there's a competency there, proficiency or knowledge. How does that even work? I mean, how does dispatch or Eversight or Encompass meet the patient so that they're making an informed decision? How does that help me understand how that works? 
But Jacob. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big part of what we work on every day. I think um, there's a little bit of feedback we get sometimes when people first hear about Everside Health thinking uh, one of two things. One, is this too good to be true? What am I, what am I missing? Uh, the second being, huh, I, I'm not sure how I feel about my employer, my job um, being uh, connected to my personal health care. Um, and ha- so how do we get through those things? I, I think it's really a combination of, uh, of education, of transparent communication. I mean, on the employer and the privacy side, we can, we can talk to patients about HIPAA and privacy uh, practices around the, the provider-patient relationship. Um, quite honestly, a lot of the learning just comes by word of mouth. Um, I, I'm, mm. I'm fond of sharing my, my own personal story. Uh, when I first got access, when I worked at DaVita, I had access to, to Everside Health as a patient. And at, I, I was one of those folks who said, you know, I have, I have a primary care provider I'm happy with. I don't, I don't want my work uh, in my personal medical life. Um, and then what happened is I got sick. And my primary care provider, I called and, and they said, yeah, we can get you in next week. And my thought was, well, I'm, I'm sick now. And then I remembered through my workplace, I had access to Everside Health. I gave them a call. They said, can you come in in an hour? And I said, yeah. Um, and they took that opportunity not just to uh, treat what I was uh, facing that day, but they said, hey, if you'd like to come back in and establish care with us, uh, we'd be happy to take uh, to take care of you. So uh, that's a lot of what we do patient by patient, just explaining what we do and how we're in their corner. And uh, and patients, once they once they come in uh, once or twice, they, they typically keep coming. Uh, that's 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 rational. That makes it uh, makes a ton of sense. Meg, how does it work from dispatch's perspective? Not too dissimilar where once they've experienced us, they're, they're ready to, to come back. But I will say it's similar. Like it's got to, it's too good to be true. Wait a minute. You'll come to me within two hours, you know, or, or whatever it may be. So hmm. I would say, you know, a couple of things that we do on our onboarding process, we try to make sure that we have appropriate, you know, reading levels and things like that of the language that we're using to describe our services and do the risk stratification. So that way it's translating well to the mass majority, you know, of callers. Um, we have web-based mobile-based ways that they can request care. So hopefully we're also hitting people, you know, whatever is the methodology to request care that's best for them. Um, and then I, I think, you know, we have, I don't know, most of our patients are new patients. We have a lot of return repeat patients and we also have a lot of caregivers that are calling in on behalf of. So it's me for my mother or it's mm. I'm a caretaker um, for somebody. And so often they're the ones that are recognizing, gosh, I don't have the time or of the foresight or whatever, to be able to plan accordingly a half a day or a full day or whatever it may take to get somebody into an urgent care appointment, especially if they're homebound or have transportation issues. And so um, a lot of times it's the caregivers. And we also have referrals directly from our providers and uh, payers that we partner with. So a lot of, you know, times they're helping with managing up the dispatch option uh, as a, you know, choice for their, their members. And then sometimes even making the direct referral to us um, should it be something where they can't handle the need appropriately, or it'd be better suited for dispatch health to come in and, and treat that patient where they are. So a lot of different ways that, that hopefully we're trying to get the message out, but once similar, I experienced dispatch health firsthand. And I mean, I'll, I, I'm definitely, that was long before I worked for dispatch health, like you were saying, Jacob, and I, I'm a believer um, from that firsthand experience. It just takes one time. <laughs> So there's an unavoidable theme in everything in in each of you has said in that when, when I think about, when I think about access and I think about how you generate your business and referral mindset, a lot of it has to do with convenience and experience. 
staffing is everything for that, right? You can't, you want to get a dermatology appointment, you're looking at March of 2024, like it, it, providers and the availability of individuals. So how, I don't understand, help me understand how you accomplish access, convenience, that experience you just described, um, particularly given your scale and size. You, you Chad, the scale and size of Encompass, help me understand from a staffing standpoint, how are you able to staff it? How does it work? How do you have the providers who are available at the right level? Particularly, it sounds like we're, we might be uh, the whole top of the license notion that, that, that uh, I think Meg had mentioned. How does that work? It's been tough, especially over the past year. The biggest thing that Encompass does, I think, is we're big on best place to work list. And you'll see that just throughout the country where we have offices. So I think it's the either corporate culture or the, that extra feel, kind of the family feel that their offices have that makes us different from other providers and working at another provider. But I think staffing is difficult for all healthcare providers across the country. Are we talking largely APNs, PAs, What's the what's the license mix that dominates your rosters? Nurses and physical therapists and home health. Okay. Oh, Jacob, how about you? Yeah, for us, it's a mixture of family medicine physicians and then family medicine trained nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And so we'll work with each client when we're establishing a new health center to discuss the uh, right staffing mix for that particular location and patient population. Uh, we find it works really well to pair the two together. So to have a health center staffed by a physician complemented by an advanced practice provider um, gives the patient some choice. It allows some focus, as we've been saying, uh, for each provider to work at the top of his or her license. Um, and I'll, I'll echo what Chad said, especially as we talk about these innovative models. One of the challenges we face is recruiting providers um, who, uh, who get it and they want and they want to practice this way. And I think for in our world, for a family medicine physician who's coming from the fee-for-service world, where they're seeing you know, 20 or 30 patients a day, generally generating a lot of referrals and, uh, and a lot of billing codes, it's, it's different. Um, a lot of our providers tell us, you know, this is, this is the way I want to practice medicine. Um, but on the front end, it, it, back to this too good to be true, we, we sometimes struggle uh, with, with that. And, and the other part of our model is we want our patients to be able to access us. So we ask our providers to be on call 24 seven, because we'd rather get a call, um, on a weekend or in the evening than have one of our members go to the emergency department for something that we could have helped avoid. So it's interesting because, you know, there are jokes that physicians will choose certain specialties at a residency because they don't involve call. Right. And now you, you, you're telling me that your FPs and your primary care advanced practice nurses and PAs, they take 24 seven call. They do. Yep. How does, how staffing for Meg, how staffing for dispatch you're largely because of the, it's much more autonomous, right? So um, actually, so I'm going to try to kill two birds with one stone here. So there was a question in the chat um, and it asked a little bit about our focus. We, you know, we go to the home, do we use telemedicine? And so I, I guess to tie that into how we staff, we are constantly focused on how we can continue to right size care. We have limited resources. There's not necessarily um, parity with regard to reimbursement across all different, you know, payers. And so what we're trying to, I think, do is look at our risk stratification model and make sure that we're optimizing it all the time. And so 
we started off with the business model of sending out an emergency trained nurse practitioner and physician assistant paired with a, a medical technician into the home. And what we found is, you know, typically our patients are chronically ill, elderly, and that's appropriate. But there's sometimes that, you know, that's a snotty nose or a sore throat or whatever, and we want to right size care. We don't necessarily need to send out that full team. Um, so instead, we've developed a model that we call telepresentation, which is basically like an enhanced or assisted virtual visit where we send out the medic, they've got the kit, the equipment, they're doing, you know, they've got a moderately complex CLIA certified lab that they can run point of care testing, but they've got the, the virtual APP on the other end. Um, so that mm. way we're continuously right-sizing care. And so depending on the service that we're providing, the staffing complement might be a little bit different. So it could be anywhere from a med tech telepresenting, um, full telemedicine, you know, could, we could go all the way then with the hospital level of care in the home where you've got RNs coming in and doing visits. So, you know, anywhere from that episodic intervention to now we do um, post-acute visits in the home. So after they've been discharged from a hospital at one of our partner systems, we'll send in a nurse or a tech to do some follow-up um, and make sure that, you know, within three days, there, there's some services wrapped around them. And we're avoiding a readmission all the way through a seven-day episode, a 14-day episode, a 30-day episode, really just based on what the patient needs. So the staffing complement is all based on, you know, that sort of right-sizing care and right-sizing the resources needed to, to treat them appropriately. I was going to hold. I was going to hold this question for diving into COVID, Jacob. I promise we're going to get there. I, um, diving into COVID, but this relates to all this, Meg, because you just mentioned the role that that mobile technology and telemedicine plays. COVID aside, or COVID, let's go ahead and go there. Is, what role is telemedicine playing in your current delivery model? Is it is it dominant? Is it is it different post COVID? Is it um, or not, uh, Jacob? Yeah, I think it has shifted, but I think it's here to stay. And to, to at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, probably in April of last year, uh, somewhere around 80% of the appointments Everside completed were virtual. Mm -hmm. And I think that's um, stabilized. I'll use the word stabilized, who mm -hmm. knows, but uh, around, around 40, 30 to 40% now of care is still being completed virtually. I think there's been a lot of um, learning and a lot of comfort development on both sides, both patients and providers, patients realizing that, mm. you know, this is something that is convenient and safe and trustworthy and, and I like it. And on providers uh, really seeing that, hey, there's a lot of medicine I can practice with a video feed or even a telephone call um, uh, to the members. And then we wrap that around the physical um, uh, clinics, the health centers that we have. So. You know, the, the, probably the classic example is abdominal pain. There's certain elements of abdominal pain that the providers can evaluate virtually, but uh, probably the patient does need a, a belly exam for comprehensive care. Mm -hmm. And so the same provider who speaks to the patient on the video visit can then say, great, if you, if you want to drive over, we have an appointment uh, this afternoon and, uh, and we can complete the care that way. Chad, is, tech, is technology or... or, or telemedicine or telehealth generally, is that playing a role in Encompass's model or has, or has COVID changed that? It has. There were waivers this year to allow telemedicine visits and we mm -hmm. found that we use them, I think more so when, when COVID was, was really bad. And for our patients, it seems like a lot of them still prefer in-person visits. So I think telemedicine is here to stay, but I don't think it's going to replace uh, having a nurse there in person. Yeah. 
I can tell a little what, story what? around that if, if it's relevant, if, if you don't mind. Oh, please. So, because you're right, Chad, we've had the same response, particularly from certain um, consumer segments that are just, they, they love seeing their provider. They want to see their doc, you know, who they've been going to for years or whatever. Um, but one of our partners in the Pacific Northwest uh, earlier in COVID said, hey, we're, we're struggling to get our patient panel in to see their primary care for, you know, health maintenance visits. How can you help us with that? You have assets in the market, you know, you've got teams that are already going into homes. Is there something we can pilot there? So uh, over the past year, we've been piloting what we call Clinic Without Walls. And it's essentially one of our medical technicians going out into the home and then telepresenting back to our partner's primary care provider and being able to, again, provide point of care lab testing and some of that hands-on stuff that um, otherwise you can't do with just a virtual visit. And we've now since been able to survey our patients that we've treated through that mechanism through Clinic Without Walls. And it's all of them say that it saved them, you know, two or three hours um, than a typical visit would. All of them say that they loved it and that they would do it again. But all of them also said that their preference would be a hybrid model, that they would see their providers in person sometimes. Mm. And then on the, the off times or, or, you know, here and there, they'd be able to interact with them with the clinic without walls model. So I agree, I think it's here to stay, but there's gonna be this blend, I think in the future. And we have to think about the difference in, you know, different consumer segments and their preferences and being, being able to, to accommodate those. Does, provi- uh, does provider or physician, what the acceptance of that model, a technician going in and facilitating that, providers accepting of it? I mean, you got physicians like, all right, I'll, that works for me, I like it. Some of them. Yeah. So it's some of some, some of them okay. kind of yeah. like, how's this going to work? You know, a little, but some of the provider that we've had, you know, the, a couple of providers that we've had piloting that have been wonderful and they are totally bought in. Once they see the technology, they actually say the heart sounds, the lung sounds, the ear sounds are better through technology than they are through a stethoscope or for what, you know, they'd be hearing in the office and they have the ability to record those things, go back and document it in the chart that way. So I think they've really seen the value and then just to also, while I have the floor, um, answer a question I saw come through, at least on the panel side around, we, we leverage remote patient monitoring, we leverage personal emergency response devices. Um, and our view is that eventually we're gonna have to be able to partner with any of those solutions, any company, because we've got, again, a diversity of partners from health systems and payers that may have preferences from, for RPM or for PERS devices. And we wanna make sure that we're leveraging those so we can keep people safely in the home, but that we can not you know, create unnecessary limitations with which devices we can be compatible with. And if I could mm. add one idea onto that, talking about you know, the acceptance of virtual health across different areas of healthcare, uh, mental health, uh, I think it's been remarkable mm. and a really great thing for society to see the very quick um, acceptance of virtual mental health care, I think despite all of the work that we've done over the years, there still is a little bit of a stigma for patients going into a psychologist, psychiatrist's office versus finding a, a comfortable confidential space to do a virtual visit. Um, it it has, has done great things I think we've seen uh, within our population. Jacob, that's interesting because I often think about building the report in, in, in emergency situations, this doesn't really happen as much, but building a rapport so there's a trusted relationship there's a sense that you, it's hard to do that in initial virtual encounters. That hasn't, that hasn't appeared to be a hurdle from Everside's experience? It really hasn't. I think what you just described is, is what all of us um, anticipated uh, at the start of this. And uh, I think we've seen those walls break down very quickly. And again, on both sides, both from the provider feeling as though 
she or he is, is uh, it's more challenging to create that rapport without seeing the person in person. And, and on the other side, the patient feeling comfortable to have this uh, type of relationship across the screen. There's a notion, I mean, you can go, if you go to most health systems websites today, you're going to see the words clinically integrated or clinic, you know, we're a clinically integrated or integrated delivery system. It's a um, strategy officers love it, Meg. It, it's a, it, it's a, it's a concept. Now it has legal parameters on it. If you think from like antitrust issues, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's a, it's a delivery model and it assumes that providers are collaborating with other providers and you're sharing information how does that work within, you know, Chad, from Encompass's perspective, and historically, there was probably a lot of handoff situations, right? You, you know, you're post-acute managing patients in a home health setting after discharge, post-surgery, that sort of thing. Has it, what is, what is clinical integration played a role in each of your models in terms of affiliating with other providers? Yeah, I think more and more it's, it's coming up and providers are asking for it. So we have contracts where we share data, share metrics, track quality. At its core, I think it's, it's the same thing we're all doing, improving results for the patients. And that's, that's all of our goals. So the more that we can incorporate metrics that are aligned between us for the patient and actually track those, hold each other accountable, meet and discuss, the more we're seeing benefits. And are those metrics, I mean, some of this is co-management, right? You and another provider type. I mean, those metrics, is that information that's, is it solely within Encompass providers jurisdiction or some of it because of, it's a, it's a, it's the cares being managed with a primary care provider you're not affiliated with. I mean, is it, are they all internal metrics to Encompass providers or are they metrics that kind of measure the more of the continuum or other aspects of care that you're not exclusively responsible for? It, it's both and it depends on, yeah. depends on the okay. metrics, right? So, so some data we'll have to share. Some is the provider can add data to REMR or vice versa. But I think in, you know, in most cases, it's we need to share reports and meet and, and talk. And it, it's not as easy as it sounds uh, on its face. No, so. it, nothing, right, right. Um, Jacob, direct primary care how, how does that work with specialists? How does that work with relying upon the various specialties and subspecialties that your FPs and, and APNs, et cetera, lean on? Yeah, so I think in primary care, we view our role as the quarterback or the coordinator of the patient's care. Um, and so when we think about specialists and referral needs, we, we kind of think about it in three tiers. Uh, so the first tier would be, you know, with the right time and tools and training of our own providers, can we get this done inside uh, Everside? Um, now, the next mm. would be uh, perhaps the maybe it's a diabetic and the patient's situation is at the on the bubble at the edge of the of the family medicine providers training. Uh, we'll leverage an e-consult service to do basically a, a curbside consultation in that case with an endocrinologist to get uh, to get an opinion. And then that might result in a referral to that endocrinologist. Uh, one of the nice things about our model is because we're working with clients, we work with a defined number of health plans. So each of our clients typically only has one, maybe a handful of health plan options. So we get to know those pretty well, who's in network, who's uh, gonna give us great quality, great service and keep those costs low. 
Um, so that, that's, our, that's our view of the, the world of specialty. We, we, as much as possible, try to keep it in-house. And, and when we do need to lean on our, our specialist partners, we try to use the best plan information and uh, analytics to make sure that we're sending patients to the best, uh, the best specialist. How does, your, how does your EMR work? Do you, uh, providing access and populating it with those providers, do you, do you have relationship, you have relationships where they've got direct access? How does that work? Yeah, it, it, it's a difficult question to, because there's not just one, ans one answer. There are, you know, certain health information exchanges in different states make it very easy for us to retrieve information. Um, some people might be familiar with Epic. Epic has a care, anywhere, care everywhere functionality that is very uh, easy to use so the primary care provider can get records more easily. Uh, but I'll be very honest with you, there are still instances where we're getting faxes and uh, other records uh, in older ways and we'll incorporate those so we can make sure we have everything we need. The, the occasional pigeon or so, yeah. Exactly. Um, Meg, how does Dispatch Health integrate? You probably have, given the remote monitoring and technology, I'm sure you've got direct access. You're an extension in some cases for, for your hospital relationships, right? You do have direct access to the EMR. Depends on the relationship and we're working on further integration with Epic uh, specifically, okay. but I would say, you know, what we do is digest uh, their network and our platform is able to refresh that and make sure that if we need to send a referral, we're sending it within network um, for that patient. So that's first and foremost. Um, one of the things though that we find with our model as it grows and evolves is we become our own referral source. So when we're in mm -hmm. a patient's home for an urgent care or emergency care level visit, six to 8% of the time, somebody needs to be admitted for further observation or for a short stay. And we're able to evaluate their home environment right then and there and say, okay, would they be eligible, you know, to be admitted in the home? And so when you're doing that with our model, we have 98% acceptance rates where patients are like, sure, great. Okay. Yeah. You can do that right here. Uh, I can safely be admitted at home. I'll do it. When they're in the hospital, and this also gets to another question on the Q&A, when they're in the hospital and they already show up, either they buy ambulance or, or self or whatever, and they're in the emergency department and, and a physician says, hey, we're going to need to admit you, um, but we can admit you at home. We're partnered with dispatch or, you know, medically home or other others that do hospitalization in the home. The admittance rate is like, I think, less than 2% or something, because it's very hard for mm. patients once they're already there physically to understand, wait, I got to go home now and you can actually do that at home, but I'm here. So you don't want to take care of me or, you know, can you just do this now? And so um, our acceptance rate when it's, when we're referring to ourselves for like that next level of care, a little bit different than a specialty consult, but for that next level of care is really high. And so we, we continue to see benefit with having a full continuum of options to offer patients. Um, and then the question also starts to ask about the decline in volume. You know, these are patients that I don't think health systems will be incentivized for the long haul to keep them in their four walls anyway. Um, and it's actually going to mm. be, you know, win-win, a benefit to the health system and the patient to be able to treat them at an appropriate cost setting. Um, so I, I do think there may be a decline in admissions, but hopefully a pickup in value um, over the course of time. And then, you know, I do think that the reliance on elective procedures in the inpatient setting is short-sighted. Um, with the vast majority of those things moving to the outpatient safely, um, outpatient space safely, hospitals are going to have to figure out another way, I think, to partner with folks like us who are willing to um, help them create opportunities to right-size care mm. and safely care for patients where they are when appropriate. 
So the whole notion of decline in volume is a good segue to, co- to address some COVID issues here. Um, Chad, what did, I'm going to go around the horn here, but I, I think I want to hear from each of you on two items. How, what was the biggest impact COVID had on your delivery model? And number two, what do you expect? Is COVID changing your operations? Let's assume everybody's vaccinated in 42 days and we, we kill this thing and everybody, you know, the, the malls are full and everything's happening. Let's just assume all that. How, how COVID may change, if at all, or is it not changing operations post-PHE? Post Chad, how did uh, COVID impact volume? How did you react? And any, is anything going to last? Yeah, so COVID created a lot of challenges for us, I think, like everyone else. Our patient volumes decreased a lot in home health. Um, we had decreases in visits per episode. And also on the supply chain side, we had disruptions. We had trouble getting mask and other PPE. Um, so either delays in that or price increases and that continued for months. So I think once, you know, once that's resolved and everyone has equipment they need on time and it's not worried about getting it, that that's a big difference. And, and, you know, I think, you know, you're right. COVID could go away and, uh, and I don't know that anything changes from how we're handling it now. I think we've, we've made the adjustments that we need um, in our operations to, you know, to handle it if it comes up again or, you know, and made improvements in where we're at. So, so I don't know that we'll have, we're not going to flip a switch or anything and, and change everything when yeah. COVID's gone. So. That makes sense. Jacob. Yeah, for us, I I know we've talked a bunch about this shift to virtual, and I think that's here to stay. I think finding a good balance between in-person and virtual visits is probably what will will be the future for us. I mean, to be honest, 10 months ago, I was wondering, will we continue to build primary care health centers um, as we continue to shift to virtual? And the answer has been a resounding yes. And when we work with employers and union groups and other uh, uh, trust fund groups, they're still interested in having an on-site, a near-site place where mm. their folks can go to receive care. Uh, if I can highlight uh, maybe one other thing that was a silver lining or something good about the pandemic is I think it it got everyone thinking about healthcare. And when we think back to the beginning when no one really knew what what to do or how to get tested or things like that, the public health guidance was, you know, go talk to your your PCP. And I think there were a lot of folks out Mm -hmm. there who said, you know, I I don't have a PCP. And and that was their motivation to say, hey, I I probably need someone in my corner. And so they uh, got themselves into the healthcare system, which I think is is great for everyone. Yeah, great talk, Meg. Well, so COVID kind of threw us for a loop. Similar things like everybody, we had to, you know, acquire PPE and make sure we had all the right safety protocols. But um, we were you know, a leading indicator of COVID volumes. We were, we would be getting called for asymptomatic testing. We'd have people with symptoms, you know, coming into their home to do testing. So they didn't have to go out in public and, you know, either risk getting the virus or risk spreading the virus. And so um, it just accelerated. We had, you know, busiest year. Uh, of course, we've been growing year over year, but I mean, just way more than we would have uh, anticipated um, with just your seasonal communicable disease. And so COVID accelerated our business model. Absolutely. Um, but it also, I think, highlighted some areas of opportunity for us to, like we have been doing now, is evolving across the continuum. So early days, we could get out there, we could send a team, you know, and we were doing asymptomatic or symptomatic COVID testing, and we quickly realized, 
gosh, you know, sometimes, for example, it's a whole family that needs the testing. How does that impact our logistics engine and our, you know, uh, mm. predicting on scene time and, and some of those things? And so it's thought, made us think, I think, a little bit differently about how we're onboarding patients, the questions we're asking, how we're working them through the, the process, um, as well as right-sizing care once again. So I've said that a few times, but if you're just doing a point of care test, you know, we can send out a medic. We maybe don't need to send out a whole team. And so um, just thinking again about what are the resources that are truly needed? Because in the past year, we were very full in all of our markets, mostly with COVID. <laughs> um, and so that is a little bit of a concern too for us, just from, you know, seeing volumes drop for other communicable diseases, you know, what will seasonality look like in the future? It's kind of a, uh, a wild card, I think, but uh, should be fun to solve whatever that challenge may present. Um, said by a true strategy officer, that'll be fun to, yeah, um, I love it. So, hey, so we're let's close with this. I want to ask each of you, you uh, your wish list, your one item from your delivery model, meeting the patient, outpatient, home care, what is what is the the hurdle that you want to over want to overcome? What's the wish list? Is it a is it a reimbursement one? Is it a regulatory issue? Is it and your perspectives are going to drive this? I mean, Chad's a lawyer, so he's going to want you know we want free market principles and all. Like, what is the one wish list that would ab absolutely optimize your strategic goal, your care model, et cetera? Chad, I'll start with you. I think so. Right now, there's I think a lack of telehealth reimbursement just throughout healthcare. And so the reimbursement model needs to catch up to the technology. So that, that would be my first, first ask. All right. Yeah. And you, you, there's a long list of people behind you with that one. Um, Jacob. Yeah, for me, it's, it's a bit of a buzzword, but, but value-based care. And that, that term has been around for a while and I still don't feel like we're where we should be. I think the world still revol revolves around fee-for-service and the incentives are aligned to provide more healthcare as opposed to the right healthcare. Yeah, I get it. Meg. Well, I second both of those notions. So I agree, but I will add um, just for a different flavor that for us, the um, variability in scope of practice um, limitations by state by state mm -hmm. really, I think inhibits our ability to innovate and think creatively about how we um, use the right resources for the right care at the right place. So. Um, that would be probably my a number one if I, if if not for reimbursement. <laughs> that's yeah, that's absolutely huge. The inconsistency. We have fifty states. You have to navigate with those issues, and absolutely. So we are right at the sixty-minute mark. I am absolutely grateful you took an afternoon here um, in late March to speak with us, and especially want to thank each of the panelists for their expertise and experience. If you're interested in learning any more about any of the topics we've discussed please feel free to reach out to any of the speakers or visit our website at hallrender.com. As always, thank you, thank you again for your time and we hope you have a great day.